0: Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Tonight, I'm hoping that I can brighten your spirits. We're going to be talking about two major categories of technology that have really progressed, and, um, in a, in a relatively short period of time, and technology doesn't solve political problems. It doesn't solve interpersonal problems. I think that's well known. Um, and it's it's a flaw to think that they do. But to look at that sort of technological progress, to me, in in difficult times such as these, gives me some hope that, you know, there are things that that do get better and you know uh, some of these things come from come from difficulty come from problems some of the growth in the world does come out of adversity and so i'm hoping that this discussion brightens you your day in the way that thinking it brightens my thinking the first major technology to talk about is transportation now that's a uh, obviously a very major category and transportation has been with us from the very beginning and in the very beginning, it was walking. And so I thought, you know, let's let's consider how much have we improved transportation. And to look at that, look at how long it would ta- take to walk from the east coast of the United States to the west coast of the United States, across the country. And it's around 3,000 miles. Um, we know that it's really not possible to go 24 hours straight, at least not for some of these technologies. And so we can, we can say that, you know, maybe eight to 12 hours of break would, would be necessary. So how long would it take to walk across the country? And I, you know, the number there is about two to four months, um, going, going across the country on foot, like the pioneers did takes quite a while and quite a lot of effort. And at some point, you know, you got to stop and make camp and or stay at a hotel or whatever you're going to do, but it is something anyone could do. It's probably easier now because there's a lot more flat roads, but at the same time, you're still going to be going through deserts and stuff. The next major breakthrough in technology is biking, and in, in the sort of time traveler episode, talked about, you know, would it be possible to invent a bicycle earlier? And of course it is, um, probably possible that a bicycle was invented earlier, but a bicycle requires roads, and, and that's the interesting thing. A lot of this stuff requires infrastructure, and so the biking infrastructure, walking infrastructure led to biking infrastructure, better pathways, and biking infrastructure led to better car infrastructure. So, assuming decent roads, you can bike at maybe 10 to 15 miles an hour on average. Um, there are some some things to consider with that. If you're crossing the Rocky Mountains, it's going to be very slow to go up, and probably not as fast going down as, as it could be because... A, you've got wind resistance, and B, it's probably pretty terrifying to ride a bicycle at seventy miles an hour. So my guess is, you know, that that's gonna slow things down. But my guess would be somewhere between two and five weeks across the country. Um you know, depending on how long of a break you take and how quickly you can get up and around the Rockies. That is a huge improvement over walking, right? I mean it's it's five times faster. And if something gets five times better, that's that's amazing. But then we invented the car. And a normal person driving 60 miles an hour can cross the country in between four and six days, right? Drive eight hours a day, something like that, stop stop to eat, rest, see the town you're in. You know, four to six days. I mean, compared to two to four months or or two to five weeks, that's an incredible improvement. It's an improvement of like 20-fold. 20, 20 but we could do better. Even with cars, the Cannonball Speed Run has recently been set as a result of the lack of traffic during the lockdown. Now if you're not familiar with the Cannonball Run, um there's there's a lot of uh stuff about it. It was originally called, I believe, the Cannonball Memorial Coast to Coast Speed Run or Trophy Run. Um and it ran officially for a couple of years. Uh, in the 70s. It's an unsanctioned race. It's an illegal race. It's the, how quickly can you move from a particular parking garage in New York to a particular parking lot in Los Angeles? And so you've got to cross the entire country. You've got to find the best route, avoid the police, and speed like crazy. There's a series of movies that were just kind of like all-star cast comedies in the 70s called Cannonball Run and Cannonball Run 2. Um, and at the end of last year, beginning of this year, there were some uh, some stories about some people who'd recently completed the Cannonball Run and set a record, and then they waited two years to tell the details of it. And they did some crazy stuff, right? They took a car and they painted it to look like a different car so it looked more boring. They hadn't, uh, you know, ways to tell where the... Um, the police were. They had a spotter with a long-range binoculars. They even had a collision avoidance radar f- system from uh, aircraft. So they could tell if police aircraft were in the area. They were calling friends, and, and they they beat the record. But then the lockdown happened, and a new solo record has been set. And so we know how fast a car can get across the country. 25 hours... 55 minutes, just under 26 hours. This one guy crossed the entire continental United States in a car. So if we go with 120 days down to about one day, it's about 120 times better if you're willing to break the law and and be super dangerous, right? I can't I can't endorse people doing the Cannonball Run because that's a crazy dangerous thing. If you get into an accident at that speed. Right, the, the, the speed necessary, you have to average over, I think, 110 miles an hour, and that means that you've got to make up for time when you stop for gas. Even if you stop for gas for five minutes, you've still got to make up that time. I think that the solo cannonball run um, that, that just set the record, he put a special 150-gallon tank in, so he only needed to stop for gas once or twice, which is still insane. All right, but we know that cars aren't the pinnacle of speed, right? Uh, I'm not covering trains here. Um, I didn't didn't spend the time to look up the speed of different trains, um, although trains do kind of fit in. I just kind of went straight to airplanes. So the Spirit of St. Louis, the first plane to fly solo, Transatlantic, flew at about 120 miles an hour, and that that would happen about 25 hours. So that's to to cross the country. So that's actually not that different from the Cannonball record which is kind of crazy. Um, But that was an incredibly fast plane for its day, and it it was incredibly fast for anything in its day. But of course, that was really early in the years of aviation. Soon we had the Boeing 314A Clipper, which was the first uh, commercial airliner. And what makes that aircraft really interesting is it's a type of aircraft that's more or less died out. It's a flying boat. And that's different than a seaplane. A seaplane is a normal airplane that's fitted with floats instead of landing gear. But the the idea of a flying boat is it actually has a boat fuselage and it lands on the water. Uh, and it was really great in the early days of aviation to have flying boats because you didn't need to have an airport everywhere. Anywhere that had a regular port could work. And it had uh, transatlantic and transpacific capabilities in terms of range. So that, that was pretty great. If you were to fly it across the country, it's... It, it's cruising speed, I think, was 188 miles an hour, so it would take around 16 hours. Um, you know, we're getting much, much faster than walking at this point, you know, from months to hours. Uh, the first kind of modern commercial airliner uh, was still a propeller driven. It was the Douglas DC-3. It went at 207 miles an hour, so that shaved a little more time off, right? 14 and a half hours. This is a propeller plane, Um But it's where you look at it and you say, well, I recognize that as an airliner, right? This is something that passengers fly on and it looks like what we expect. But it didn't stop there, right? Eventually, the 707 was released. And if you've never heard this story, I I think it's an awesome story. The, The Boeing 707 was shown at an air show and the pilot who was flying it really wanted to show off. So he took the plane and he did a barrel roll. And a barrel roll, right, you fly the plane kind of in a circle, and if executed properly, the barrel roll maintains around 1g of force, so everything's still kind of pulled down as you'd normally expect during level flight, but it's an impressive maneuver. And you see this happen, right, and people were blown away, and it helped them get a tremendous number of orders. That pilot got the full fury of the co of boeing saying you took a multi-million dollar investment i don't know how much money they spent on it in an air show and pulled a risky maneuver now it worked but it, the, the story i heard is that he never quite got forgiven um so you know you had the the 707 and it was uh you know it was the first of its type it was a turbojet eventually turbofan engines came into style None of those really had much of a performance difference in terms of speed. It's mostly about fuel efficiency, because they're all subsonic airplanes. Uh, and they, they go between like 550 and 600 miles an hour. And flying coast to coast is about five to six hours. So we've gone from two to four months to five to six hours. I mean, you're you're talking, you know, a thousand times faster probably there, right? It's It's incredibly fast. Now, there was the Concorde. It never flew over the continental United States because of regulations. But if we're going to go for fast jets, let's go for fast jets. Let's go for the fastest jet we know of, the SR-71 Blackbird. Now, this airplane, if you've never seen one, you should definitely take a look at it. It is a very, very cool airplane. In the show notes, I've got some information linked to about it. It talks about Dulles Field or something like that. It's a part of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum near Dulles Airport, that is now known as the Udvar-Hazy Center, um, named after this um, airplane lease financier who donated a bunch of money. But the uh, so if, if you're wondering where that one that they're talking about in the show notes are um, it, in the link in the show notes about the SR-71, that, that's where it is. Uh, it's near Dulles Airport, about uh, 40 miles from Washington D.C. The SR-71 Blackbird, it's the most incredible airplane. It was built at a time. Uh, in the Cold War, where we had this U-2 spy plane that could fly high and out of the range of the Russians. At least we thought so. They they could detect it. And they couldn't do anything because it was too high up. But eventually, they were able to reach it with some, some sort of missile or something. And it became a big deal, because they're a very close society. It's hard to get information. The United States wanted information about what was going on in the Soviet Union. And so... They built the SR-71. It still flew incredibly high, 70,000, 80,000 mi- uh, feet, Right, whereas a, a typical commercial airline flies at maybe thirty to 40,000 feet. It flew incredibly high and incredibly fast. It flew so high and so fast that missiles couldn't catch up with it and couldn't reach it. They had a procedure. If there was a, a fighter jet behind them and launched a missile at them, Their evasive maneuver was to just go faster. It could outfly a missile. A missile is literally a rocket. It could outfly a rocket in the atmosphere. There's never been a plane that we know of that's been faster than this plane. And uh, I forget which movie it was. It was a movie from the late 90s. They talked about how it leaks fuel on the ground because it's designed for flying at that high speed where everything vibrates and it causes all this heat and everything expands and seals up. The SR-71 Blackbird has the record for coast-to-coast flight. It flew from uh, Los Angeles area to the Washington, D.C. area in an hour and a half. So going from even at the, the fastest walker you could imagine, right, two months of travel, down to less than two hours of travel with our fastest plane. And if you go into to rockets, right, the numbers get even crazier. Rockets can go Thirty-five thousand miles an hour. The space station, the International Space Station, orbits the Earth every ninety minutes. But I feel like that's a bit of a different thing because it is in orbit and it's it's up high and you can't just easily hop up there and hop back. Right? We were not too long ago had a lot of people watching the the launch of the SpaceX ca- Dragon capsule getting up to the space station, and that was a You know, it was a big spectacle, right? So space travel, it's still not something the normal person can do. The same is true of the SR-71, I suppose. But that gives a really good idea of the fact that we've gone incredibly far in the realm of transportation. All right. So that's transportation. Just, Just imagine transportation. And now I want you to think about communication, How much is communication advanced? We talk about information overload and and the progress in communication, but I don't know how much we really stop and think about how much things have progressed in such a short period of time. So let's let's go back to the 1700s, 1776, the year that the United States declared independence from England. Sending a letter from England to the United States took one to three months. Right? It was the age of sale, and to do it required someone's passage. You not only sent the letter, you also sent a person, a servant, someone who could carry the letter for you, and then they would have to deliver it. Sending a message without sending yourself was difficult and expensive. But it was possible, and it took months. So if you wanted to communicate between England and the United States, it took quite a while. So we're going to start looking at how things improved. Well, clipper ships, right? They were faster, faster boats. they could improve on that. But the telegraph, right? That was the innovation. That's what changed communication really, right? Because it was if you're talking in person, that was one thing, and then you had letters. those were your, that was the other thing. But now we had the telegraph. The telegraph was something different. Now it was a lot like sending a letter, but a lot shorter typically, and a lot faster. Uh, typical telegraph was short because you paid per the word, right? It was expensive. And so, um, you know, it was, it was somewhat like how Twitter worked. Uh, only just Twitter direct messages, I guess. So in 1860, as the relatively early days of, um, of telegraphs. Well, let's start with the Civil War. During the Civil War, it cost about a dollar to send a message. That's equivalent to about $115 today, and we're talking a short message. Um, that's just during the Civil War. Now, if, if you went 1860 and sent 10 words from New York to New Orleans, that would cost about $2.70, which is roughly $65 in 2002, which is uh, you know ballpark around probably that 115 figure we just talked about in today's dollars. Uh, going transcontinental, coast to coast, was $7.40. Um, that would be two hundred and ten dollars today, and just sending ten words to England was seven dollars and forty cents. Another two hundred and ten dollars. So if you wanted to send ten words, right? You can't even say the entire lyrics to Happy Birthday without it costing two hundred and ten dollars to send that message. The transatlantic cable that made that possible was twenty-three hundred nautical miles long. It had seven strands of copper and special insulation. It was surrounded by high tensile strength steel to keep it from, from breaking. And it was laid by the biggest ship of its day. It was a ship that was built to carry 4,000 passengers but they had a lot of problems with it. They couldn't fill it and so it didn't work. Um, it was an amazing undertaking. I've got a lot of links to this in the show notes. You should read about it. amazing undertaking to do this, to to go across the Atlantic because They had to build this weird cable, and they didn't have the modern materials they have today for insulation, so they had to figure this out. Salt water is a great conductor, and if you don't insulate your cables well, these are copper cables, the wire's going to go across it. It was, this ship in its lifetime laid 30,000 miles of cable, and it moved at 5 miles an hour. So it laid many transatlantic cables, and now they have specialized ships that do this. Um, We still lay transatlantic cables, they're fiber optic today using much higher-tech materials, and, well, we'll we'll talk about how that's changed things. Um, When they were finished with that first transatlantic cable using those seven conductors, they were able to send a signal at eight words per minute. So, terribly slow. Um, People speak at about 100 words a minute. After some help from a physicist named Oliver Heaviside, they were able to make some changes. I believe that the way that it worked is they added a, um, an inductive choke. So it, it blocked a lot of the lower frequency energy, allowing the higher frequency energy through, which took the the signal because of something called group delay. As that energy went across the wire, the, the waveform kind of spreads out over time and they are able to kind of sharpen that up a little bit. I, I believe that's, that was what Oliver Heaviside did. but I read that in a different book about Edison. So I'm not sure if um, if that was his approach or if that was Edison's approach and there was a different approach. But they were able to get up to 120 words a minute, which is pretty close to speaking speed. Um, that's, you know, with, with the right type of equipment, you can send quite a lot at 120 words a minute. But still, 120 words a minute isn't much. You know, if you're you're one of, you use 24 hours a day, I'm sure, but only so many messages can get through, and it was expensive. And that was the telegraph. Telegraphy lasted for quite a while, but it started its decline after the invention of the telephone. And I'm not going to talk about the very early days of the telephone. We're going we're gonna to start looking at 1960. And there's a few reasons for that. The early days of the telephone, things worked a little bit differently. Um, you know, there wasn't ubiquitous long distance. The phone companies were... You know, there's the Bell Company, but there are other companies, and things eventually stabilized into this Bell monopoly, right? The the Bell Corporation or at and owned pretty much all the phone systems, including the phones in people's houses. And so that was um, that was by the 1960s, sort of in a place where it was stable. And the reason I'm starting in 1960 specifically is I found a great document, uh, and it's it's linked in the description. It's from the FCC from 1995, and it Lays out the the rates in a an do, adjusted dollar figures. Uh, well, it lists them in there in the figures for that year. I adjusted them for twenty twenty dollars. Um, but this document lays out the cost of a phone call, and so we're going to look at um, the the cost of a phone call from uh, New York to L.A. Mostly. Uh, we'll start that one in 1950, but we're going to talk about a couple others. So 1960, a three-minute telephone call cost roughly the same as a 15-word telegram. Now, that's interesting for a couple reasons. One is 15 words can't express much, and in three minutes, talking at normal speed, you can exchange about 300 words. So if you prepare what you're going to say beforehand, it's going to work well. Um, in 1962, you could call across overseas. Um, it was three minutes, three dollars a minute to the UK, three sixty a minute to France, and that would be about like paying twenty one dollars and sixty cents per minute. Uh, three dollars would be in in twenty ten dollars. So tremendously expensive. If you had a friend who is overseas, they're gonna send you a postcard, right? You might call your if you're overseas for a year, you might call your family a couple times because it's it's like spending a few hundred dollars to have that conversation. All right, so let's, let's look at the cost of communication over the phone from New York to L.A., and this is the cost of a five-minute call. And a five-minute call is significant because there have been many times in, in versions of this where the first minute costs a different amount than the subsequent minutes. So the first three minutes are at one rate and subsequent minutes are at a lower or a higher rate. So five minutes takes that into account enough to, to give an idea of what a brief phone call might cost. So um, I'm giving the cost of peak time, that would be business hours roughly, and then off-peak time, that'd be after 11. So if you remember the nights and weekends era of cell phones, that was a carryover from how the traditional long-distance phone system worked. You paid more during the day when it was more busy and less at night when it was less busy. Um, I certainly remember a time where my brother lived across the country, and if he and I wanted to talk, I usually waited till late at night on a Friday, like 11 o'clock, because it was cheaper to make the call then. All right. So in 1950, it was 185 at peak, 125 off peak. That's the equivalent of $19.68 or during peak or $13.30 off peak. So pretty tremendous difference. And this stuff's all in the show notes if you want to read it, because I know it's, it's hard hearing a bunch of numbers. That, um, the peak time rate did not change. In 1960, in uh, unadjusted dollars, the off-peak time actually went up, so it went from uh, 125 to 145. Um, peak stayed at 185. The the thing is that changed it to a, a lower figure when you adjust for inflation. It went from 1968 to 1602 for peak, and from 1330 down to 1256 per minute in 2020 in dollars $20. so actually you know saving at least a dollar a minute um which is pretty significant um and you start to see this interesting pattern right uh in the 1970 inflation wasn't that high but the cost of the phone call actually went down to 155 peak and 80 cents off peak so without high inflation uh that's still uh still a pretty tremendous decrease in cost and that took it down to uh is that 1024 for uh peak rates in 2020 dollars and 529 a minute or for five minutes and off peak. So we're getting down to almost a dollar a minute off peak in 2020. Dollars. Still tremendously expensive, but starting to be affordable, right? You could have a half hour conversation and skip going out to dinner or something. Um between nineteen seventy and nineteen eighty there was a period of very high inflation. Okay, so the phone pricing actually ends up reflecting that as to the price of a lot of things. Um, so it was 1.97 for five minutes, and uh, on peak and off peak, it was down to 79 cents. So that actually went down even with all the inflation. Uh, went up from 1.55 to 1.97 in in uh, dollars, but cost adjusted, the prices actually dropped a lot. So the peak rate is now 6.13 for five minutes, which is getting close to that dollar range. It's about a dollar and a quarter per minute to call, and the off-peak rate got down to 264, so that's the equivalent today of 50 cents a minute. Much, much cheaper. We get into 1990. The rates had dropped, and there continued to be inflation from 1980, so now you're down to 120 for five minutes on-peak and 65 cents per minute off-peak. That takes that five-minute call down to 235 during business hours and 128 off-business hours. Remember, <clears throat> we were starting in 1950 at around almost $20 per an peak call, so it's one-tenth the cost of what it was uh, 40 years after 1950, right, from 1950 to 1990. And then the last year I looked at was 1995. Now, we're not going to see as dramatic of a change here because it's only five years. Inflation wasn't terribly strong in that part of the, uh, the 90s, but the price did go up in um, actual dollars. It uh, you know the, the current day dollars but it stayed pretty consistent in um, in 2020 dollars and so uh, it was 135 per minute on peak and 70 cents a minute off peak that actually translates to 227 peak and 118 off peak so both of those went down by about 10 cents for a five minute call um, but we're down to about a quarter a minute right? 118, 128, so in the 90s it was about one quarter per minute for a long distance call across the country. Now just think back to 10 10 words cost $210, right? Now we have about enough time to transfer about 500 words of information and we can do that for 118. That's a tremendous change. That's a tremendous change. Um, That really helped people connect. And as we moved into the 90s and cell phones became common and and the way the networks worked changed, the idea of long distance started to evaporate, right? Anytime calling became a feature that some phones had, you paid extra for it. Maybe you had a landline phone plan with it. And eventually it just became part of every phone plan. Maybe if you have a landline today, it's been a long time since I've had an actual landline and not a voice over IP line or, or cell line. Maybe they still have that kind of setup, but for you know regular phone use, if I want to call my my brother across the country, I want to call my sister across the country, I want to call you know a friend from somewhere else, I don't think about how much it's going to cost, right? They've the the cost of those calls have gotten a lot cheaper, and that brings us to the internet. At one point the promise of nuclear power nuclear power was that they thought it would be so cheap that we wouldn't need to meter it. We wouldn't meter it. That term, of course, comes from Louis Strauss, who was the energy of the United States Atomic Energy Commission, right? He he thought that you know electricity would be so cheap from nuclear power that we wouldn't need to meter it. And for a variety of reasons, that's not how it worked out, right? There's there's a lot of reasons uh that we do charge per kilowatt hour. Some of that has to do with the way nuclear power plants are financed and their lifetime. Some of that has to do with transmission costs. But it didn't happen. It did happen, though, with Internet connectivity, for many, many types of connections. Before the Internet, right, all the stuff we've been talking about, up to 1995, I paid per minute, I paid per message. It was always metered. I paid per something. But once the internet came to be, things worked differently. It was a packet-switched network. You weren't tying up a circuit. You were sharing it on a best-efforts basis. It was less reliable than the phone network. But you didn't need to charge for every single packet to switch. Things could move around. In the modem era, it started out kind of metered. Sort of. you dial into AOL, and you'd have a certain number of you know, minutes that you could use. Some ISPs did that. But eventually, those plans gave way to unlimited plans. And and not too far into the 90s, right? 95, I'd say, was the peak of AOL. And over time, right, you know, they'd give away so many hours. You know, first it was 40 hours, then it was 60 hours, then they would give out 700 hours. Eventually, they gave out more free hours for your first month than were in a month. Um, but you could send as many emails as you wanted Barring, you know, you overloading your connection. But at least as many emails as a person could practically write. You could write them offline, connect, and send as many as you want. Um, You could chat. Some early voice over IP existed. Once you got onto an internet connection, it wasn't really metered. It was metered by time, right? And the, the time was measured in hours. But pretty quickly, there were unlimited ISPs. And then broadband came about. And there were a few promises of broadband. One was, and the one everyone thinks about, right, broadband connection is your cable modem, your DSL, your fiber to the premises if you're in a place that has that. And the promise was that it'd be much faster. But also, some of the other promises, right, it was lower latency and it was always on. That was a big change. You didn't have to dial up anymore. This was a dedicated connection to carry your data, to carry your internet connection. And so now, you definitely could send as many emails as you want. Um, Voice over IP had existed before, but it became a lot more practical once you had a fast internet connection at home with lower latency. I did some voice over IP stuff over dial-up, and it did work, but it was a lot less convenient. The technology wasn't as advanced and easy to use it as it is today. Um, and of course chat had existed over dial-up, but chat became much more common. And it, images, right? Sending images in, in chat and emailing images became much more common and much easier because the capacity was there, and it was unmetered. You could talk to whoever you want as much as you want. Then the mobile area came around, right? And that's the era of cell phones. And it started out unmetered. Initially, if you got, you know, the early iPhone on AT&T or you got some of the other kind of competing phones like the Trio, um, you could get that on a, a bunch of carriers at the time. You know, I think Singular carried it and Sprint carried it. They would give you an unlimited data plan you know, th- on, on their 2 or 3G network. And you could... Use as much as you want. And then at some point, data became the predominant use of phones, right? Sometime around maybe 2012, 2013, and the carriers started putting out metered data plans. They'd sell you a certain number of gigs per month. And for some uses, it was practically unlimited. For sending textual messages, right, sending emails and and data-based text messages, it was practically unlimited. The The actual SMS messages were limited for a large part of that time, although it wasn't that expensive to get a, a lot of them, and now they're, they're not. Um, it's been a long time since anyone's had limits on the number of text messages you can send, but there was a period of time that was the case. But for practical purposes, you can't send four gigabytes of emails unless you're including attachments, and so there was no practical limit on the amount you communicate, even voice over IP calls. A, a gigabyte or, or two gigabytes is quite a lot. Plus, during this transition to metered data, phone calls became unlimited. So instead of a voice over IP call, you could just make a regular phone call and talk all day. Um, you know, at the time that mobile phones were, were metered, there were tricks you could do. Right? You know, you you get a thousand minutes on your plan, but they might actually have a second thousand minutes that can be used for. Voicemail, and if you knew some some tricky codes to put in your phone, you could make it so when you dialed yourself instead of going to your voicemail, it went, you know, went to your your girlfriend, and uh, and then you could have an extra thousand minutes to talk. You know that that was something I definitely did. Um, but now it's it's unmetered, right? They don't they don't care how many minutes I use. They don't really care about how many texts I send. There is some sort of limitation on data, but actually. They've gotten rid of the meter again, right? They they don't sell me a number of gigs. They send me, sell me a number of prioritized gigabytes, right? After I transfer a certain number of gigabytes, I get deprioritized, and the people who haven't over haven't used a lot yet get priority over me. But if it's at night, it doesn't matter, right? I, there's not a lot of people using the tower, and you know I still can get my data through. And I've never actually seen significant throttling in my use, but I'm not a, a super heavy data user most of the time. So we've gone to this area of, you know, a few restrictions, right? They, they limit the bandwidth of certain types of connections and, and prioritization, but it's, it's actually unlimited. The data has become so cheap, it's not worth metering. You pay for a connection, but they don't know. Uh, they know, but they don't charge you based on how much you use, not really. At this point, video calls have been so common that, you know, they're... You know, they're done all the time. People do them mobile, they do them certainly through their terrestrial connection, right, through their home broadband or, or whatever. And now, rather than spending three months to send a letter and having to send someone unless you're lucky enough that someone's already going across the ocean, you can call Coast to Coast or across the Ocean for free with a lag of no more than one second and in a, a high-quality video call. You can cross the Atlantic Ocean for... I mean a tremendously small amount of money in the grand scheme of things at in reasonable comfort and luxury and 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 it's fast right you can cross the ocean in six, seven, eight hours depending on which flight you take, and the cost to do it is low enough that an the average worker, if they decide to save up for that, can do it right the The average entry level worker can save up money and afford to do that if if that's a a goal. And the average kind of middle-income worker can certainly afford it, and a and an upper-income worker has no problem affording it. Maybe they can afford a little bit more. Now, you know, traveling is expensive, and I've I've done some travel episodes. Maybe I'll do some more. It's a uh, it feels a little tough talking about travel right now when uh, when so few people can do it, and uh, you know, I certainly feel like I can't go anywhere too far away. Maybe we'll talk about it again soon. I don't know. The point is, we have this incredible ability to travel. We've got this incredible ability to communicate. You can get on the phone and have a video call with your friend, your family who, who live all around the world, and it costs nearly nothing. Now your big problem is the time zone, right? Someone lives six hours you know, ahead of you or behind you, and it's hard to find a time that matches up. Or someone lives, you know, 12 and a half hours or something, you know, on the other side of the ocean other side of the planet, and it's time, hard to find a time where you're both awake. And that's your big problem, right? You can have a video call with someone who lives somewhere else, and it, it works great, and it's incredible. And it's one of the things that makes me feel good. The fact that, you know, I do have friends in other countries that I'm able to stay friends with because, you know, we're able to communicate. It's easy, and it's, it's essentially free. It's very inexpensive. It's an incredible advancement of technology, and it enriches our lives. We can stay in contact. We can find out what's going on around the world and understand different perspectives. Technology has its problems. And it's caused problems in our day. And it's caused problems in every day. You know, there's there's an interesting article somewhere where someone's bemoaning the decline in quality of writing like you hear today, but the article is you know, 200 years old or something. It's... It's not that the technology isn't without problems, but to look at the problems without looking at the benefits it's given us and can give us is to miss out. And so this is my, my whole thought, right, it, it is that we should have gratitude for the people that built this system and, and the fact that it's available to us. And it's millions of people who've been involved you know, doing every job from engineering to digging ditches to laying fiber optic cables to doing sales to setting bill rates to answering the phone as an operator have all contributed to this world that we live in where communication is fast, effective, and nearly free. And likewise with the aviation and automotive industries, millions of people have worked in building cars, designing them, laying out roads, designing roads, digging the roads. I mean, all the different things that are necessary to make the system function, right? There's people building stoplights. The history of stoplights is fascinating. You know, stoplights originally were intended to be a way to help police direct traffic in busy intersections. And people just started paying attention to the stoplight instead of the police officer, and it was invented by accident, essentially. Right? The the whole concept of a right-of-way got turned on its head with vehicles. The right-of-way originally was just everyone has the right to be on the road and it changed to people should take turns and we need to segregate traffic based on how fast it is because you don't want to have cars and pedestrians sharing the same road it's just you know doesn't flow well it's dangerous right it's incredible stuff right and people people build all these things and and contribute and you know a lot of times I'm sure those jobs seem like mundane jobs but they make the world a better place and I'm Grateful for the people who've done that work. I'm grateful to be able to do work that I feel like is improving the world in some way. You know, I, I feel like hopefully people are learning things as as you listen to my podcast. I hope you're learning things. The podcast isn't my job. I don't currently make any money from it. Um, but in my job, I I, I do get to do something that makes makes a difference for people. And uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's not you. Maybe it is. Who knows? But. The fact that we, we have this opportunity to make the world better in some way means that we should take that opportunity and figure out what we can do to to change things, to improve things. You know? Make it a make it a more fair and just place. Make it a place where people can connect, where people can share love and, and share moments with their loved ones. So that's what I feel. I feel gratitude for all these things that have have enriched my life and I've, I believe, enriched yours as well. My name is Josh and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.